0: You're listening to a city on a hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Today's
1: Bible reading comes from 2 Kings chapter 10, verse 18 to 36. Then Jehu assembled all the people and said to them, Ahab served Baal a little, but Jehu will serve him much. Now therefore call to me all the prophets of Baal, all his worshippers, and all his priests. Let none be missing, for I have a great sacrifice to offer to Baal. Whoever is missing shall not live. But Jehu did it with cunning in order to destroy the worshippers of Baal. And Jehu ordered Sanctify a solemn assembly for Baal. So they proclaimed it. And Jehu sent throughout all Israel and all the worshippers of Baal came so that there was not a man left who did not come. And they entered the house of Baal and the house of Baal was filled from one end to the other. He said to him who was in charge of the wardrobe, Bring out the vestments for all the worshippers of Baal. So he brought out the vestments for them. Then Jehu went into the house of Baal with Rehanadab, the son of Rechab. And he said to the worshippers of Baal, Search and see that there is no servant of the Lord here among you, but only the worshippers of Baal. And they went in to offer sacrifices and burnt offerings. Now Jehu had stationed 80 men outside and said, The man who allows any of those whom I give into your hands to escape shall forfeit his life. So as soon as he had made an end of of offering, the burnt offering, Jehu said to the guard and to the officers, go in and strike them down, let not a man escape. So when they put them to the sword, the guard and the officers cast them out and went into the inner room of the house of Baal and they brought out the pillar that was in the house of Baal and burned it. And they demolished the pillar of Baal and demolished the house of Baal and made it a latrine to this day. Thus Jehu wiped out Baal from Israel. But Jehu did not turn aside from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. That is, the golden calves that were in Bethel and in Dan. And the Lord said to Jehu, Because you have done well in carrying out what is right in my eyes and have done to the house of Ahab according to all that was in my heart, your sons of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. But Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his heart. He did not turn from the sins of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin. In those days, the Lord began to cut off parts of Israel. Hazel defeated them throughout the territory of Israel, from the Jordan eastward, all the land of Gilead, the Gadites and the Reubenites and the Manassites, from the Ora, which is the valley of the Arnon, that is, Gilead and Bashan. Now the rest of the acts of Jehu and all that he did, all his might, are they not written in the books of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Jehu slept with his fathers, and they buried him in Samaria, and Jehoahaz his son reigned in his place. The time that Jehu reigned over Israel in Samaria was 28 years. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Thank you, Lizzie. I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want. If you're looking for ransom... I can tell you I don't have any money. I've gone Scottish when I'm supposed to be Irish. But what I do have is a very particular set of skills, skills I have acquired over a very long career, skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. If you let my daughter go now, that'll be the end of it. I will not look for you. I will not pursue you. But if you don't, I will look for you. I will find you and I will kill you. That is, of course, Liam Neeson's speech from the movie Taken. Uh, In that movie, Neeson plays a CIA operative whose uh, daughter is kidnapped while on holiday in Paris, sparking a one man mission as Neeson looks for his daughter and seeks to exact justice. Uh, Justice for him basically means a lot of death. And if you know Liam Neeson, this is classic Liam Neeson. He always seems to be playing this kind of role, the avenger of justice, the angel of death. In fact, so famous is he for this that there are actually websites that track the kill count from his movies. It turns out he's killed 184 people across 33 movies, 36 in Taken Alone and 33 in the sequels. In fact, there's a map that you can find on a website charting where this all happens. And I mention all of this because today's king, Jehu, reminds me quite a lot of Leon Neeson. You see, Jehu is the Avenger the man of violence, the angel of death, and yet he claims to be acting at the command of God himself, that he's on a mission from God. And so in today's passage, we are confronted with the questions about good and evil, about the difference and the the line between justice and vengeance, and if it's possible to make peace even while you're making war. Well, we first meet Jehu uh, when he is a commander in the army of King Joram. Now, Joram is the king of Israel. He's also known, confusingly, as Jehoram. Uh, and he is the son of Ahab. We met Ahab last week and he was not a good guy, 1 Kings 16. Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And if you know the stories of the kings, that's really an indictment. If he could be the worst of all of them. Uh, He and his infamous wife Jezebel were responsible for a whole string of evil acts. Uh, They erected an an altar and built a temple for Baal in Samaria and led the people into some grotesque sin and idolatry. Uh, Jezebel slaughtered the prophets, God's chosen messengers. And yet even in the midst of all of this, we heard the story of Naboth. Uh, Jeremiah mentioned this before. There's this story that stands out amongst everything. Uh, Naboth was Ahab's neighbor and he's the next door neighbor of the palace and he's got this vineyard there and uh, Ahab covets it. He asks demands for this vineyard. Naboth doesn't want to give it to him though because this is land that God has specially given to him and to his family and he doesn't feel like he has the right to give it up. And so Ahab just chucks a tante uh, like a little kid. He goes back to his home and he lies on his bed and looks at the wall and he refuses to eat any food. Jezebel sees him and says, why are you so upset? You're the king. You can have whatever you want. And so she makes it happen for him by uh, getting a a charge, trumped up charge against Naboth so that he's executed. And for good measure, she makes sure that his children are killed as well. And God is furious about this. He sends a message to Ahab through Elijah the prophet. Thus says the Lord, in the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick your own blood. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free, in Israel. I'll destroy your house for the anger to which you have provoked me and because you have made Israel to sin. And in today's passage, we're going to see that judgment enacted. Ahab is dead, but his son Joram is on the throne, and in the midst of this, Another prophet, the prophet Elisha, sends a message to Jehu saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anoint you king over the people of the Lord, over Israel, and you shall strike down the house or the dynasty of Ahab your master, so that I may avenge on Jezebel the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord. And what follows is this extraordinary description of his mission to enact God's justice. There's seven episodes of destruction that follows. The first one starts with Joram himself. At this point in time, Joram is in the city of Jezreel. He's with uh, the king of Judah, Ahaziah, and they're kind of nursing their wounds. They've just been fighting against the king of Syria; it hasn't gone well, and so they've retreated to Jezreel for to recover. And then they see Jehu and a whole band of men coming towards Jezreel, and uh, Joram is a bit jittery, and so he he goes out with the king of uh, Judah. They go out to meet him and say, "Is it peace? Do you do you come in peace? So you, is everything okay?" But Jehu makes it clear that it's not. What peace can there be, he says, so long as the whorings and the sorceries of your mother Jezebel are so many? How can we live in peace when there's so much evil in the land? Realising this is a trap, Joram turns to flee, but he doesn't get far. 2 Kings 9, and Jehu drew his bow with his full strength and shot Joram between the shoulders so that the arrow pierced his heart and he sank in his chariot. To Jehu has gotten rid of Joram, but he's only just getting started. Now he goes after Ahaziah, the king of Judah. After seeing Joram killed, Ahaziah turns and tries to flee, but he doesn't get far. He's caught, uh, injured and dies soon after. And then Jehu goes after Jezebel. She's still alive and she's hiding in Jezreel. Uh, Jehu comes there. And at this point, Jezebel comes out all confident. She assumes that the people of the town will protect her. And so Jehu calls up to the wall. Is anyone with me? Any of you? And it turns out that there are people there. And so they grab Jezebel, they throw her over the wall and we're told that some of her blood spattered on the wall and on the horses and they trampled on her. It's incredibly graphic, but it's her disgrace is still not finished. Jehu goes inside to have some lunch and to celebrate his victory. And after a while, he thinks, oh, we should probably bury Jezebel. But they go out there and they find that there's no remains left because the dogs have eaten her up. People are cringing, I can see it. Still, Jehu isn't finished. Now he goes after Ahab's sons. We're told that there's 70 of them in Samaria. Jehu taunts them, inviting them to take them on. Come on, you guys have got weapons and cities. Why don't you defend your master's house? But they're all too terrified to do it. They don't look like a threat, but Jehu makes sure of it. He tells the officials of the palace to take the heads of your master's sons and come to me at Jezreel. They take that literally. So they just lop off the heads of these guys and mail them to Jehu. But still... Jehu is not finished, he heads off to Samaria, on his way he bumps into the relatives of Ahaziah, the king of Judah, and he kills them too, 42 of them, he slaughters them. And when he finally gets to Samaria, he liquidates anyone remaining from the house of Ahab until uh, he had wiped them out, we're told. And then finally, we get to our reading today and the massacre of the prophets of Baal. Uh, Baal, you remember, was the god of the nations around Israel. they become a terrible snare to God's people. And so now Jehu resolves to get rid of them once and for all. So they don't realise what his intentions are, but he throws this massive worship festival. He says, uh, Ahab used to serve Baal, but I'll serve him even more. Why don't you come to this place? And so they have this big festival. And as soon as everyone is there, he sends in his snipers and they get rid of them. We're told that they demolished the pillar of Baal, demolished the house of Baal and made it a latrine, a toilet, a dung heap. And then we're told, Jehu wiped out Baal from Israel. It's it's quite the read, isn't it? I could see people getting increasingly uncomfortable as I went through that. There There is a lot of death there, a lot of blood, a lot of killing. What are we to make of it? What do you make of it? Does it make you flinch? Does it make you feel uncomfortable? Do you find it appalling? If so, you'll you'll probably think that Jehu is wrong here, that this man is a violent, sadistic vagabond, an evil revolutionary who just brought chaos and destruction. Except the problem is we're told throughout that God approves and even commands what Jehu does. First of all, when he's anointed by God, remember what he's told. You shall strike down the house of Ahab, your master, so that I may avenge on Jezebel the blood of my servants, the prophets. He's commissioned to do this by God. And then after every one of his episodes, Jehu reminds us that he's doing this in accordance with God's prophetic word. After killing Joram, he says, remember how the Lord made that pronouncement against him. After killing Jezebel, this is the word of the Lord. After getting rid of the sons of Ahab, he tells the, 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 the town, know then that, they shall, that there shall fall to the earth nothing of the word of the Lord. This is all according to what God said, he says. And then finally God affirms what uh, Jehu has done. Verse 30, the Lord said to Jehu, because you have done well in carrying out what is right in my eyes and have done to the house of Ahab, according to all that was in my heart, your sons of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. God is rewarding Jehu for all of that death this is very confronting for us, isn't it? Uh, It would be easy for us to think, well, that says something evil about God himself. If he commanded this, surely God is wrong. And of course, there are some people who would say this. Uh, Richard Dawkins, back when he was relevant, uh, said this. The God of the Old Testament is vindictive, bloodthirsty, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent, a bully. That's a big call though, isn't it? I mean, the Scriptures dispute this. Psalm 89, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. They defend Christ. They defend God. And so if Jehu is not in the wrong and God is not in the wrong, maybe the thing is our thinking about God is wrong. See, perhaps we don't actually understand what God is like. We want God to be a friendly and benevolent, grandfatherly figure. We want that. We imagine, we assume that He's always kind and always forgiving. But that's not always how the Bible depicts Him. Yes, that is part of what God is like, but He's also depicted as a God of justice who must always respond to evil. Nahum 1, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. But I want to suggest today that while we might find that uncomfortable, maybe we actually want that. Or even if we don't want it, this is the kind of God that we need, a God that we need maybe even more than we realise. You see, why is it that so many people love Liam Neeson movies? It's because we want to see justice. We see bad things happen and we want to see bad uh, the people who did those bad things be punished. We want to see justice. And sometimes we balk at how that's done by the 79th death. You're kind of thinking, maybe you can lay off, Liam. But we still want that justice. We want to see evil put down. And we love those movies because we see this, we experience this in real life. I mean, how do you feel about when you read or you watch a documentary about the horrible things in history? I remember watching a documentary recently talking about the Holocaust. How do you feel when you watch stuff like that? And what about the stuff that we see today? Uh, How do we feel about the bloke that they reckon killed the campers in the Victorian high country Or the guy who kidnapped that little girl Cleo in Western Australia a few weeks ago. Uh, During the week I read a story, a horrific story, uh, about a court case that's happening at the moment where a former member of Islamic State uh, has been charged with the death of a five-year-old girl he had purchased as a slave and then chained up in the hot sun to die. How do you feel when you hear those stories? You feel angry, don't you? And what do you want? You want to see justice. And I'm going to suggest that that is the right feeling, that actually that feeling ultimately comes from God because God is the God of justice. And we see that in this story here of Ahab and Jezebel. See, we we need to understand that Ahab and Jezebel were incredibly evil. We were pointed to this last week. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. He provoked God. Think about what they were doing. They killed God's prophets. And, And when they led the people into Baal worship, we need to understand just how horrific that was. This is a religion that... Uh, required child sacrifice. That's the kind of culture they were encouraging in their land. This was against God's law and so they deserved to be punished. Philip Ryken says, if ever a royal couple deserved the wrath of God, it was Ahab and Jezebel who were greedy, vicious, scheming idolaters. It would not have been holy and just for God to let all those sins go unpunished. Another writer, Tony Merida, goes further. He suggests these punishments aren't just a demonstration of God's justice, they're actually a demonstration of God's mercy, that actually God was trying to protect his people from the stain of this kind of sin. And so he told Jehu to do this. God is a judge, an avenger. It would have been wrong for God not to do something about this. And so he sends Jehu to do his work. And actually, God's people have been crying out for God to do justice all through the ages. In the Old Testament, we read this. They long for God to intervene and to act. Psalm 79. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Let the avenging of the outlawed blood of your servants be known among the nations before our eyes. Let the groans of the prisoners come before you. According to your great power, preserve those doomed to die. Uh, Return sevenfold into the lap of our neighbours, the taunts with which they have taunted you, O Lord. They're, They're crying out for God to avenge this. And then when it happens, they rejoice. Deuteronomy 32, rejoice with him, O heavens. Bow down to him, all gods, for he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. And this is not just in the Old Testament. This is in the New Testament as well. Revelation 6 Uh, pictures the souls of those who have been martyred for the faith, slain for the word of God, we're told, and they cry out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? You see, their, their suffering demands a response and they're calling out to God for that response. You see, God's people are suffering. Right now, Heather prayed about Christians in Nigeria. In India, Hindu extremists constantly harass Christians, disrupting worship services, burning down churches, killing pastors. In China, there's an estimated 130 million Christians suffering greatly. The Communist Party had very strict rules for churches to be an authorised church to to lead religious services. uh, You must first express your love for the motherland and support of the Communist Party leadership. When people go to an authorised church, there's facial recognition software and cameras to track those who attend and to monitor how they behave. For many Chinese Christians, that's too restrictive. They want to worship in more, uh, greater freedom. But to do that, they have to hide away in house churches. But they face the constant threat of their neighbours dobbing on them because they'll be paid, they'll be rewarded for that and face concentration camps or death. Do you know, it's estimated that 100,000 Christians die for their faith every year. That's one every five minutes. In the time that we meet together today, 15 Christians will lose their life. And their souls cry out for justice. And when God responds... They will rejoice. Revelation 19, after this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God for his judgments are true and just. He's judged their enemies. He's avenged the blood of his servants. I know this is uncomfortable for us, but it's important that we grapple with this. And perhaps we don't grapple with it because we don't see as much of this evil. Scott Sauls writes, To accept that God is a God of love but not a judge is a luxury that only the privileged and protected can enjoy. Because we don't have, the, we, it's getting harder to be a Christian here in Australia, let's not deny that, but it's still not hard like it is in so many other countries. And because we don't see that kind of injustice done against God's people, we maybe don't have the same craving. God to act. But those who do, those who are experiencing great evil, they long for God to act. Miroslav Volf is a theologian who was born in what is now known as Croatia, uh, lived through the breakup of Yugoslavia and in the wars during the 1990s he saw horrific things that changed his view of God. He writes, I used to think that wrath was unworthy of God. Isn't God love? Shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath? And he says God is love and God loves every person and every creature and that's exactly why God is wrathful against some of them. He says that seeing 200,000 people killed and over 3 million people displaced, he came to believe that he could not imagine God not being angry about that. Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. Throughout this series, we're looking at the kings of Israel and Judah, and each time we're being invited to look beyond them, to see the great king, the coming king, the perfect king, Jesus. And today with the story of Jehu, we're invited to look at the God of justice, that God does see what is evil and will respond to it, will judge it, will avenge that, the suffering of his people, that that's ultimately what Jesus will come to do. But always as we see these links to Jesus, we also see how far short the king's fall. And so it is with Jehu as well. You see, his legacy is a strange one. He's promised a dynasty, but it's a very brief one to the fourth generation, we're told. Now, if you remember, God has often promised like, to David that they'd have this everlasting dynasty, but to Jehu, it's a much shorter one. And then uh, we read in the book of Hosea, the prophet says that he will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. Now, what that's in reference to is hard to say. You remember, he was acting according to God's command. He was doing what was in God's heart, we're told, but perhaps he went too far. So, for instance, we know he was given a clear command to punish Ahab's family, but he also killed the family of Ahaziah. Was that right? Perhaps he went too far. And it points to us the danger of what happens when humans become vengeful. Yes, God uses human agents to execute his justice, but often those human agents are held back by their sin. They get carried away, they go too far. Righteous anger turns into self-righteous zeal and God's justice is overwhelmed by their excess. I think it's interesting then, it's telling, that God tends now to reserve executing his justice to himself. Uh, the God of the Old and the New Testament is the same, but he seems to act in different ways in this regard. In the Old Testament, he often used human agents like Jehu, who's explicitly commissioned for the task. But since the time of Jesus, he reserves that for himself. And so if you hear someone coming along, and you'll often hear countries say this, that we must avenge God's people somehow, you need to question that because that's not how God Seems to work these days. In fact, we need to take the attitude of the Apostle Paul. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And so, yes, Jehu is an agent for God's vengeance, but he's not God himself. And we can actually be thankful for that. We need justice, but we need God to execute that justice. His justice flows strong like a river, but it never exceeds the banks. But there's something else that we see here with Jehu, and that is his hypocrisy. Look about what's said about, Look what's said about him at the end of the passage, verse 29. But Jehu did not turn aside from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin, that is the golden calves that were in Bethel and in Dan. You might remember we learned about this a few weeks ago. Uh, Jeroboam uh, at the time of Jeroboam the kingdom was split in two we had Judah down in the south and they had the temple and uh, that was where God's people worshipped and Jeroboam was up in the north he didn't want his people coming down to uh, to Judah and so he created these calves for his people say here's how you worship this is where you come to worship God now I don't think that he was imagining that these were different and new gods this was how you worship the, the true God Yahweh the only problem was that that was against what God had said. God made it explicitly clear. You must not make a graven image of me. You can't carve out an image to worship me. Why is that? Well, it's because whenever we make a, a kind of image, the, the image becomes the substitute for God himself. It, it limits him. This is the infinite God and we're trying to constrain him. As Andrew Reed puts it, we're trying to domesticate God, but the free and sovereign Lord cannot be tamed. And you actually see Reed's point being played out here. Jehu is serving God on his terms, he's defining what God is like and how God should be worshipped. And in the process, he's asking God to serve him rather than giving himself to serve God. And there's this weird irony here. See, in our reading, we saw just how ruthless Jehu was against the worshippers of Baal. But all the while, he continued on worshipping God the wrong way. He continued on with his false worship. As one writer puts it, he was happy to deal with the foreign gods, the foreign sins, but not these domestic sins. Or you might say he was willing to deal with the sin over there, but not in here. And when I think about that, that's when I feel convicted. You see, it's so common for us to judge the sins over there and ignore the sins in here. It's much easier for us to do that. We struggle even to see our own sin. Why is that? Why do we judge others so harshly? You know, when I, make, when I sin, there's always an excuse. There's always an explanation. It was a mistake or you wouldn't understand how much pressure I was under. I was tired. It was difficult. It was really hard. It, it was tempting. You wouldn't have been able to withstand it either. But if someone else sins, we're so quick to jump on them, to destroy them, and we rejoice in it almost. I mean just go on twitter you'll see how much we rejoice in the failings and the sin of others because the more we can judge others the more we can protect ourselves the more we can hide in our own sin and we don't have to deal with it we feel better about ourselves because we can compare ourselves to others and so we can ignore our own sin But the problem is, God doesn't ignore it. See, the Bible says that we are all sinners. Romans 3, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And that means that we have a problem. See, the God of justice The God who judges sin that we've seen in this passage is not just going to judge the sin over there. He's going to judge the sin in here as well. 2 Corinthians 5, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Every one of us in this room tonight will face God, the judge. And God is very clear that where there is sin, there must be judgment. Romans 6, for the wages of sin is death. 2 Thessalonians 1, those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. And if your heart is even just a little soft, you're terrified by that thought the reality of God's judgment, of hell itself. We never talk about this in polite society. We, we desperately try to shut the door on that, but that's the reality. And So what hope do we have? Well, thankfully, our judge is also our saviour. You see, before the day when Jesus comes to judge, he first came to save, and through him we can find Peace. Romans 3: For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Propitiation is a fancy word that basically means to appease the wrath of a superior being. That's what we need. God is the superior being. We have sinned, so there is wrath. And Jesus comes to appease that. He takes on our sin. He who knew no sin was made sin for us, 2 Corinthians 5. And he takes the wrath that we deserve. Note this. As one writer puts it, forgiveness doesn't mean an absence of punishment. Justice demands that payment be made for sin. But here is the thing. It's Jesus that makes that payment. All of our sins will be punished. But if we trust in Jesus, that punishment is taken by Jesus. How extraordinary. How wonderful that Jesus steps in to turn the wrath away from us, onto himself. Jesus died for you and for me. He laid down his life for us, to receive God's just punishment, to save us from it. What a beautiful saviour. And all we need to do is, it says here, this is received by faith. We come to God, we acknowledge our sin and that we deserve his justice. Then we ask Jesus to take it for us. We trust that Jesus has done that for us. Then we're told in Romans 5 that we now have access by faith into a grace in which we now stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. When God comes in glory, many will cower. but We can rejoice because our judge is also our saviour. When Jehu came to execute God's justice, he brought only death. When Jesus came, he died so that we could have life. Let's celebrate him now. Father God, I want to thank you for this passage. It's a really tough passage and it's hard for us to deal with the reality of justice and judgment But we do need you to be a just God. We do need you to deal with sin. We long for you to do that. We think of those people that Heather was praying about in Nigeria. We ask that you will intervene, that you will show your justice. But in praying for your justice, for the sins over there, we tremble because we know that you must deal with the sins in us. Forgive us. Lord, there may be people here tonight who have never asked you to forgive them. I pray, Lord, that they will be able to trust you in this moment. Thank you, Jesus, that you have intervened, that you have taken the punishment for sin that we deserve. You took it for us. Thank you that your death brings not just justice, but life. And hope and glory and joy. May we live in that tonight, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.